0: The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News.
1: Up next, we're discussing the consequences of the assassination of Japan's former Prime Minister and the collapsing Euro. Welcome back to the Views Room, the podcast from Reuters Breaking Views where columnists from around the world discuss the big stories of the week. I'm your host, Amy Donlin, coming to you from London. The tragic assassination of Japan's former Prime Minister, Shinzo Abe, marks the end of an economic era. His party managed to increase its majority in the upper house, so the question is whether the government will take the win and amend the country's pacifist constitution, ramp up defence spending, and make the country more competitive with rival China. Next, the Euro is girting close to falling below the dollar. Looking at the diverging policies of the Fed and the European Central Bank, it's easy to see why. The US is charging ahead with interest rate rises to temper inflation, while Europe is keeping rates low. But the following euro cannot be ignored, as it will make imports like energy from the US more expensive. First, Pete Sweeney offers insight into the assassination of Japan's former Prime Minister and what it means for the country. Then Pierre Bioncent and I chat in London about the euro slump to a 20-year low against the dollar. Japan is in mourning. Former Prime Minister Shinzo Abe was assassinated, and there is now a big question as to whether his party gaining more power could lead to some big change. Here to talk to me about it is Pete Sweeney. Hi, Pete.
2: Hey, Amy. How are you?
1: Good. Good. So, Pete, I mean, you've been all over the story, written some great stuff for Breaking Views. I'm just curious if you could tell me a little bit about sort of, I guess, who Shinzo Abe was. What what did he do for Japan? And yeah, his party and, and obviously his party has, has done well in the election, which I suppose is a is sort of a, a good thing as well. So, yeah, tell us all about it.
2: Well, it, it, Shinzo Abe was uh, really one of the most important politicians in in, in modern Japanese politics. He's he's obvious he's he's the longest serving prime minister at this point in the country. And not only that, but he was tried to be a transformative figure. And he was to a certain extent. This was the guy who is credited with single-handedly, well, not single-handedly, but dragging Japan out of its its decades of deflation. You know, he tried to take this country, which was just this poster child for stagnation and kind of missed opportunities, a country that had kind of missed out on the dot-com boom. Missed out on the software boom, um, and, and really just seen itself totally eclipsed by the rise of, of China, and turn that around and and make it into into restore it or or make it into something new that was stronger and more dynamic and prouder to be Japanese, which was another you know after World War II Japan has been had been apologizing for quite a long time for what it did in Asia with cause. But he he tried to change all of that to a certain extent, and um, he, prov- he he made a lot of enemies on the way, um, you know in. In China, for example, a lot of people cheered his death. There were there was really rather offensive, tasteless parties being held. Uh, water parks um, gave away free tickets. Like he really, really angered people there. Within Japan, his push to kind of change, amend the the pacifist orientation of the military provoked a great deal of internal debate. And then his, his economic policy, it was called Abinomics. It was named after him. And this really saw Japan you know go to the bleeding edge of monetary policy in terms of exploring negative interest rates, stimulus, just massive amounts of government debt. Japanese government debt, I think, is now 266% of its GDP with no clear end in sight. you know That also has provoked, provoked a, a lot of debate within the country. But, but the main most important thing is that he was not finished. With his work, he had resigned as prime minister due to health problems, but he was the leader. He did stay in, in harness. He was the, the leader of the most powerful faction within the Liberal Democratic Party, which is the ruling party, runs the coalition that's been governing Japan for quite some time. And so he was still p- very much pushing from behind the scenes. And now he's gone. And and senselessly, you know, he was just shot in the back by a person who appears to have had some serious psychological issues. And And the Japanese have to wrap their heads around it. And it's not going to be easy.
1: And this, obviously, there was an election, right? This was sort of, he was out campaigning. So how, how did that all end up? How did that end up for his party? What was the result of that?
2: Yeah, they gained, a, it was the upper house of the parliament. They were expected to gain some seats. They did gain some seats. They're already quite dominant. You know, that said, it's it still makes it a little bit easier, marginally, for them to just keep pushing on some of these big policy changes. The one in focus now is the is the push to amend the constitution to take out these pacifist clauses and, and to um boost military spending. Um Japan, you know, has has, like many of the America's East Asian allies, has restrained its military budgets. It's like one point one percent of GDP, which is like half the NATO bare minimum. Donald Trump has been dissatisfied with this, but so frankly have been a lot of other American leaders. So they want to pump that up. Even if they double it, it's gonna be nowhere we're close to what China is spending, but still, um, we're going to expect to see some motion on that front. Um, the bigger question is what happens with, with Abenomics um, now that the global economic situation has changed so much. And whether Fumio Kishida, who's the current prime minister, now freed of this kind of huge personality in the background pushing, um, will take a, a very different tack to um, what Abe wanted.
1: And what's your sense of that, Pete? What's your sense of sort of what I guess what people are expecting the new direction to be in an economic
2: Well it's 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 fascinating because like Abenomics was was ran mostly in a period of zero when globally sedate inflation or non existent inflation, right? You know, roaring asset prices, but like nobody had to worry about inflation, just tons of stimulus. And so he Japan's policy was not that didn't stand out that much although it was definitely you know unorthodox and extreme but now that era has over ended in in the west and the united states you know inflation is back and the united states has been hiking rates and this changes a lot of stuff i mean the, the japanese yen has just is just falling through the floor it's it's gone from you know what it was like 104 per dollar in in pre-pandemic to, to I think it's 137 and still heading south. Um, that's because the Bank of Japan is continuing to hold rates, rates ultra low. So, and it's still in its, its same easing stance. So there are people who are saying, well, we can't, this is not sustainable. We'll have to tweak, tweak. you know, either our, our bond buying program, something's going to have to give, we can't just let our currency collapse. Others seem to think like, well, Japan will be fine with a cheap currency. So that's, that's one debate, you know, more broadly, you know, Kishido, one of the big things People are kind of anxious about it. I mean, this is very much an established man. Kishida is not unorthodox. He has been more bureaucratic, more conservative. And he has in the past expressed concern about the government. I mean, I'm talking like fiscally conservative. The whole LDP is, is conservative. But, um, you know, not seen as like, you know, seen as kind of a, a, a friend of the institutions, a friend of these corporations, Japan, Japanese institutions have been very reluctant to do things like hike wages or change the way they do things, digitize throw away the facsimile machines. Like he's seen kind of as an ally of those more conservative people even though he's pro digitization. Um he's also seen as uh, he's also made some sound sounds that sound kind of fiscally hawkish. Like we might get worried, you know, like we're worried about the debt thing and some people are worried that he will prematurely end stimulus before Japan has really cemented, you know, what Abe was trying to achieve, which means, you know, more consumption, um, you know, a, a more dynamic economy and, uh, and just kind of a firmer base um, for growth. This is something that Japan has done before. They have prematurely pulled out of stimulus and then seen the economy slide back. So that's a big concern. But on the other hand, um, the global situation has, has changed. So um, so that's that's the major question economically, I'd say, for him.
1: So Pete, the last question then, I guess, is sort of China. And you kind of allude to this in your piece as well about this sort of Japan, if it does spend more on defense, does this change that dynamic between China and Japan at all?
2: no. You know Japan's fundamental problem with China is not a military problem. The problem is economic. That that like Japan Inc., you know, has basically been coasting on its strengths since the 80s. That so much of its R&D has gone into like, you know, over-engineering products, um, improving and upgrading the things they're already making, and not you know establishing dynamism in other sectors. Japan, you know, like one of the things people like about China is it's become this huge startup story, right? Venture capital, PE. Love China, you know, there tons of company formation going on all the time and creating these huge dynamic listed companies. I'm abusing the word dynamic, sorry, but I mean, that's, 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 they're clearly kind of an exciting. Unpredictable, highly volatile technology environment, but nevertheless, you know Chinese companies have come up and are eating people's lunch in things like high-speed rail. They're a contender in nuclear power. Um, they're making a push on silicone chips. We'll see how that works on semiconductors. But in all sorts of areas, they've really moved up the parts of the value chain that that used to be Japan's: industrial robotics and you know machine tools, uh, automotive parts, all these areas. China kind of on the way, and investors are much more excited about the China story than they are about Japan, and that has not changed that much. Um, you've had some incremental changes on the economic policy front, but like the, it's just been going very, very slowly. And the demographic problem has not been, you know, addressed completely. China has its own demographic problem to be sure, but Japan, this rapidly aging society, they just haven't managed to turn things around. Um, they've definitely made changes for the better, but like there's the the amount of momentum. That China has, thanks to its vast internal market, the financial resources it has at its disposal now. You know, I mean, wars are fought with money. And um, (laughs) Japan is still very much on the back foot that way. So it will take a great deal more reform, um, structural reform, not just tweaks at the edges, to really reposition Japan to be what Abe wanted it to become.
1: Amazing. Very interesting. Pete, thank you so much. I'm sure we'll hear more from Japan and more from you. Thanks a lot.
2: Thanks, Amy. Take
1: care. The euro is heading dangerously close to falling below the dollar. Here to talk to you about it is Pierre Briasson. Pierre, what is happening to the euro? Uh
0: well, I would argue first with dangerously, which okay. uh, because it's just a, it's just a fact. The euro is much weaker against the dollar uh, over the last. It's down 12% this year, 18% since uh, its high uh, in I believe in October uh, 2021. For many reasons, first it can be interpreted as a strong dollar problem instead of a weak euro problem. That would be the narrative uh, at the ECB, for example, the European Central Bank. It's true that the US Federal Reserve started hiking rates aggressively much before uh, the ECB, which is still in negative rates. We should remember that. The ECB hasn't done anything about the rates, even after almost one year of high inflation. It will only start raising uh, next uh, week, actually. So... Capital flows toward the US people, I mean, investors in in, in search of yields would, of, of course, prefer the dollar to the euro. This is um, normal. What really happens, though, I mean, behind those, you know, immediate capital flow reaction is that people are worried about basically the eurozone slowdown or maybe a recession being much stronger and much, uh, much worse than the US next year. The European, the European economy is hit by, uh, as we know, the consequences of the war in Ukraine, the energy crisis, rocketing gas and oil prices, and it's hitting the EU. It's hitting Europe more than the rest of the world, of course, because of its dependency on Russian oil. And so people are looking at at Europe and saying this is not the place where basically it's, it's not the moment to invest your money in Europe right now. Yes. Those two those two elements, higher yields, higher interest rates in the US or even the, in the UK for that matter, and the upcoming slowdown or recession means that uh, there's a crisis of confidence in the common currency, which is at its lowest since 20 years
1: ago. Yes. Which is like, which I suppose when I say dangerous, I suppose I think it is sort of symbolic that this is happening, right, to the euro, that there is a sort of symbolism in sort of the twenty year old currency that obviously it started off around this range, but then took yeah, off. of course,
0: it is it is very symbolic, but but if you if you, if you if you, if you set aside uh, the, the the whatever the nationalistic pride of uh, finance ministers and and European central bankers, which you remember by the way, the early days and even the early years of the euro, where uh, we we have all forgotten that by now, but uh, the euro sank to a low of 0.8 dollars uh, within a year of its creation, of its launch, and so and it only went back, I think, above parity in 2002. So literally 20 years ago. Then reached a high of 1.6 dollars, and uh, so then fluctuated depending on the economic circumstances and the differences in economic uh, uh, cycles between the U.S. And, and and Europe. Mostly, plus ten years ago, the euro crisis, another crisis of confidence in the European currency. This time around, it's not. I mean, investors are not fearing the end of the euro, of the of the breakup of of the, you know. Uh, a common currency zone or anything like that because, they, I mean, what, what what is called redomination risks in investors' lingo. They're fearing simply that the European economy will have a lot of trouble fighting against the upcoming recession because it is still too dependent on Russian oil and gas.
1: Yes, absolutely. And Pierre, I mean, you're, you you mentioned that this is a, a situation which cannot really be ignored by Christine Lagarde. What, why, why is that? Why can the, the head of the ECB not ignore this situation?
0: The ECB is in a terrible quandary, in terrible dilemma. As soon uh, as we are going to see next next week, it is raising rates. Uh, maybe too late compared to what should have been done, maybe a few months ago. It will be. Re- it will be raising rates. And, and launch a a plan to raise rates even further by the end of the year and early 2020 in early 2023 to to again fight inflation etc it is it would be doing this just as markets seem to forecast lower inflation next year and seem to believe that inflation will indeed come back to the around the 2% level at some point in in the coming in the coming years. So fears of inflation by markets are receding if anything. Even old prices by the way uh, are, are not are not as high as they uh, they were expected to be. And so the ECB is at risk of, of killing the recovery or the, the current recovery precipitating the eurozone into a faster or even harder Slow down or recession, depending on, on 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 the the seriousness of the problem, and it's facing a weak euro. So should it raise rates to finally do something about inflation, or should it wait a little bit, but then at the risk of uh, weakening the euro further? Euro is not only bad news across the board. By the way, a, a, a weak euro makes your exports cheaper on world markets, mm. which should be should benefit a lot of, you know, exporting SMEs, not think of Italy, think of, of course, Germany. The, the advantage the upside is not as great because, because again, the slowdown which we just mentioned, the exporters will not be able to take advantage of the of weak currency in such a context. But a weak year also makes your imports more expensive, so contribute yeah. to inflation, which yeah. adds to the ECB's question, uh, which we, it will have to face next next week.
1: Absolutely. So, Christine Lagarde, it's between a rock and a hard place with this decision.
0: Yeah, maybe probably two rocks and uh, two rocks and a hard place <laughs> in this progress. case. Yeah.
1: And and all of the people in the eurozone looking to go to the US on holiday this summer will probably have to cut not, their expectations.
0: Not the right place, money-wise, to spend your holidays at all now.
1: Stay at home. Stay at home. Uh, Pierre, thank you very much for that. My pleasure. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast was produced by Oliver Taslich in London. Subscribe to The Views Room and our sister podcast, The Exchange, on a cast, megaphone, or wherever you like to listen. Check out our latest views on these stories and many others at breakingviews.com and on Twitter, where our handle is at Breaking Views.